Thank you all very much for coming. Um, I was at this point look up to the back row at the top to check the microphone is working. And you're listening. That's very good. <laughs> now, it's a special pleasure for me to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, Manoush Shafiq is a graduate of the London School of Economics. That, of course, is the most important part of um, her career. <laughs> Um, it is also the, her first outing as Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. And let me explain. Go Deputy Governors of the Bank of England give three or four speeches a year. And they give them carefully and in a measured, thoughtful way. Um, not all the people you see speaking in this room from this platform uh, prepare carefully and are thoughtful. Um, they're always intelligent, of course. But this is uh, Minushi's first outing as the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. She's been in that position um, for uh, three months or so. I've already said that uh, she's a graduate of the school. She did an MSc uh, in economics here at the school in the mid-'80s. Um, she did a, a doctorate uh, at Oxford. She was vice president, I think, one of the youngest ever, perhaps the youngest ever Vice President of the World Bank and we had the fortune of overlapping there when I was Chief Economist of the World Bank. Uh, she became Permanent Secretary at uh, DFID, Department for International Development here in the UK. Then she became uh, Deputy Managing Director of the IMF and now she is Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. Now, I'm sure you'll all agree that that's not a bad uh, career, and it all started with an MSc at the London School. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't help observing, since we will all be working way into our 70s, that my guess um, is that Minushi's career is roughly halfway through. So if that's the first half, we all look forward to the second half. Um, when deputy governors make speeches, um, it's on the record uh, and there is a text. So uh, Minoush will be uh, referring to uh, a text. There will be, I hope, plenty of time uh, for, for questions. Um, but if you're thinking of your questions, could you also be thinking of um, making, them, making them brief? Um, Minoush, it's wonderful to have you here back at the LSE. We value all our alumni, and uh, we're enormously cheerful if they are uh, exceptionally distinguished. So thank you very much. pleasure to give my first speech. Can you hear me? I don't think you can, actually. Let's try and... Oh dear. All right, let's try again. Can you hear me now? Yes. Perfect. Okay. It is a real pleasure to be giving my first speech as Deputy Governor of the Bank of England at the London School of Economics. It resonates on so many fronts. The LSE, of course, has produced many members of the Monetary Policy Committee, 
many deputy governors and de-governors of the Bank of England, as well as vast numbers of its staff over the years. I was taught macroeconomics at the LSE by Charlie Bean, who is here this evening, uh, as well as by Nick Stern when I did my MSc in economics. And Nick has, of course, been a teacher, a mentor, a colleague, and a friend over these many years. And the topic of my speech tonight resonates very much with what the LSC is all about as an institution, which is bringing the best of academic research and thinking to the pressing problems of the day. Now, as you will no doubt realize by the frequency of misconduct st stories and scandals in the newspapers, the fixed income currency and commodity markets, which I will discuss this evening, are certainly dealing with pressing problems. And the Fair and Effective Markets Review, which I am leading along with my co-chairs, Martin Wheatley, who's here this evening, and Charles Roxborough of the Treasury, was set up to restore confidence in these critical financial markets. And I wanted uh, to acknowledge the team who I'm working with, many of whom are here in the front row, who've done a fantastic job of putting together the consultation document that we're launching today. We don't want to do this work alone. That's why we're launching a consultation document today soliciting the views of anyone who has views on the fixed income currency and commodity markets, usually abbreviated as FIC, which is what I will use this evening. The consultation is open for three months and we look forward to receiving comments by the end of January and we will make our final recommendations by the end of June. In the meantime, we're very keen to work closely with market practitioners and participants who have the primary responsibility for getting things right. And we've asked and enlisted the help of a senior panel of market practitioners led by Elizabeth Corley, who's here this evening of Alliance Global Capital, to, launch, to take forward the review's recommendations. We're also keen to work with international policymakers and regulators because these markets are global in scope although London is home to a large share of them. We're also eager to work with the academic community, which we are actively consulting, including this audience here this evening. And of course, the general public, including companies and households who, I will argue, these markets matter for most of all. So, in the rest of my speech, what I'd like to do is first dismiss any notions you may have that fixed income, currency, and commodity markets don't affect your lives. Second, I'll talk about what went wrong in these markets and why, including a discussion of some of the market's key characteristics. And third, I'll outline some of the changes that are already in train in these markets, but finally, I'll ask what more needs to be done, and I'll raise some of the questions that we'll be raising in our review. So let me start with why should you care? Why do fixed income currency and commodity markets matter? And I want to start on a personal note. I was born in Egypt. In fact, my mother and sister are in the audience this evening. But I left at a very young age at when my family lost everything in the nationalizations under the Nasser government. It was a time when many well-intentioned people thought that the state could do a better job 
of allocating resources and managing economic activity than the market. That view was proven wrong. And perhaps as a result of that experience, I've spent large parts of my professional life thinking about the relationship between the state and the market. And the perspective I've reached is that well-functioning markets are the key to prosperity, but they must operate in ways that are seen as fair and effective to sustain public support and confidence. And by fair and effective, I mean that markets should allow their ultimate users to invest, fund themselves, and transfer risk in a resilient and predictable way on the basis of competitive prices. They should offer open access and transparency, and they should operate according to clear standards of market practice and integrity. So why should you care about fixed income currency and commodity markets? First, they are huge. This first figure gives you a sense of the global stock of bonds in the world, which were well over $100 trillion in 2013. That's bigger than world GDP. So-called over-the-counter derivatives in FIC markets are shown here, which had a market value of about $18 trillion, with foreign exchange contracts being the largest which is the green ball here. The turnover in the foreign exchange market every day is about $5 trillion. That's a typical day. That means that the value of trades in a month in this one single market is roughly equivalent to all the value of all the output of every worker on the planet in a year. Those numbers are so big that it may, seem, may, may make these markets feel sort of otherworldly and nothing to do with me, certainly not to the average person. But in reality, they permeate every aspect of your life. Fixed income or bond markets mediate our savings and pensions. They matter for the public finances and how much tax we have to pay. They affect the interest we pay on our debts. Currency and commodity markets affect the prices of almost every good we buy when we go shopping and the cost of changing money when we go on holiday. FIC markets also affect the ease with which employers can invest and affects their very viability, the number of jobs they create, and potentially the structure of our economy. Far from being otherworldly, these markets matter to us all. So let me turn to the pall of misconduct that has been a shadow over these markets in recent years. The shadow of the worst financial crisis in living memory has been significantly lengthened by a series of pretty appalling misconduct cases in the thick markets. Details of these began to emerge relatively late in the crisis, but they've proved surprisingly surprisingly pervasive and persistent. And they have further eroded public trust in financial markets. Public outrage is, is, is rooted in the view that rewards in finance are disproportionate and that the system is rigged. And when people read of malpractice in financial markets, inevitably they ask themselves whether they have been personally wronged in some way. In fixed income, employees in firms around the world attempted to manipulate LIBOR, EURIBOR, and other similar measures of short-term borrowing costs. 
In the United States and elsewhere, firms structured the mortgages or the other assets used to back securitized assets or misrepresented the nature of those underlying assets in ways inconsistent with the interests of, of end investors. Regulators identified systematic attempts to misvalue and otherwise engage in market misconduct in relation to large-scale positions in credit default swaps. In commodity markets, traders were found trying to manipulate physical or derivative prices, including those on gold, on oil, on lead, on platinum, palladium, and coffee. And investigations of further cases and criminal actions in foreign exchange and other markets remain ongoing. Some of the cases already brought by my colleagues at the Financial Conduct Authority have resulted in the publication of truly shocking evidence about the behavior of some of the individuals in these markets. What particularly struck me reading some of this evidence is how casual their attitude was toward the abuses that they perpetrated. In one example, a trader mentioned to his manager that he'd asked a colleague to lower the firm's yen LIBOR submission, adding that, quote, every little helps. It's like Tesco's. Was the manager concerned? Not a bit of it. He said, quote, absolutely, every little helps, he replied. And some individuals seem to have enjoyed a perverse kind of prestige from their involvement in this process. One LIBOR submitter was told by a grateful trader for whom he had manipulated a submission that, quote, his name will be written in golden letters should he ever write a book on the business. As somebody who actually believes in markets, I find this behavior outrageous. So how did this happen? How did this happen? Some academics I've spoken to think that the answer may lie in the field of moral psychology. That view suggests that initial transgressions occur because many decisions taken by those in financial markets are done by a, by a sort of automatic, fast thinking, sort of system one thinking in the language of Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner. For participants to acknowledge that such actions are questionable would in fact require the activation of slower, more effortful system two thinking, as he calls it. And the initial transgression may be small, but the culmination of many transgressions, small transgressions, can result in behaviors which would normally be, which in normal circumstances would be unacceptable, suddenly becoming the norm. And then an undesirable culture becomes ingrained. This is the version, this is a version of the old proverb that we all know, that one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. But this initial argument that one often hears, that what we've observed in financial markets is just a case of a few bad apples, is no longer credible. Instead, it seems that there were deep-rooted problems in the nature of thick markets that resulted in practices that would be unacceptable elsewhere. As the Archbishop of Canterbury recently said at a seminar I was at on ethics and finance at the IMF, bad business models can corrupt good people. Perhaps there's something also wrong with the barrel. So let me say something about the characteristics of these markets and ask what are the distinctive characteristics of thick markets and how might they have contributed to these problems? Well, first and foremost, thick markets are notable for their heterogeneity. 
That reflects the key role that many of these markets play in providing bespoke instruments tailored to meet the needs of specific investors and specific issuers. For example, while there are just 2,500 publicly listed equities or shares in the UK, there are over 11,000 different corporate bonds. And in the US, the disparity is even greater, with more than 36,000 corporate bonds issued, compared with just 5,000 listed equities. So to facilitate such heterogeneity, many FIC markets have historically been built around a market-making trading model in which participants trade bilaterally with an intermediary, a market maker, rather than directly with other investors. For example, in corporate bond markets, a market maker will build up an inventory of different corporate bonds and when there are net sales from end investors and then run it down when there are net purchases. An important advantage of this market maker model is that when it works effectively, it provides investors with continuous two-way markets. Governments and corporate borrowers can generally be confident that they'll be able to borrow at a time, in a quantity, and in a currency for a duration that they need. And similarly, investors can feel that they'll be able to trade smoothly in and out of positions, sometimes very large positions, without unduly affecting the market price. The downside of this heterogeneity is that the market in specific instruments can sometimes be very thin, and it may be difficult to gauge what a fair price is. Publicly available quotes can be based on a very limited number of small transactions, making them very vulnerable to manipulation. Another characteristic of thick markets is that they tend to be dominated by large professional counterparties. This means that most participants can be assumed to be highly knowledgeable about the products that they trade and capable of making educated investment decisions. And as a result, these markets have historically been tended to work primarily on the principle of what's referred to as caveat emptor, or buyer beware. In legal terms, caveat emptor expresses the basic principle that a buyer of a property purchases it, it at his own risk unless agreed ahead of time with the seller. There's no guarantee that the value of the property will not fall, and in such circumstances, market participants should invest time and energy in looking after their own interests, voting with their feet, taking their business away when they are poorly treated. Such market discipline has historically been a key bulwark against widespread abuse in thick markets. However, caveat emptor has never meant anything goes, and it certainly doesn't trump the obligation of firms to act honestly, fairly, and professionally. So let me turn to my third theme, which is how change is beginning to happen in these markets. The structure of these markets is already changing, and recent high-profile enforcement actions have brought have brought sharply renewed focus on conduct issues in these markets, particularly where they, have, they are seen as targeting individuals. The Financial Conduct Authority has a credible deterrence enforcement strategy and recently highlighted its intention to pursue a more interventionist approach to wrongdoing in wholesale markets. And since 2010, it has issued 15 final notices in FIC markets and imposed more than £700 million in fines uh, against firms who've, 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 who've uh, been guilty of misconduct. 
and it isn't just in the UK. The most high-profile enforcement cases to date involving the manipulation of short-term interest rate benchmarks have affected every major financial centre, including London, Singapore, Frankfurt and Tokyo. And they've already resulted in global fines totaling near £4 billion by authorities in the US, the UK and Europe. Good progress has also been made in the design and regulation of benchmarks. In the UK, the design and administration of LIBOR has been overhauled and a new regulatory regime was introduced in 2013 following the Wheatley report. And in August this year, as its first act, the Fair and Effective Markets Review recommended to the Treasury that this regime should be extended to cover a further seven benchmarks. Sonia, Ronya, the Reuters FX fix in London, the 4PM fix, the ISDA fix, the London Gold fix, the Silver fix, and the Ice Brent oil futures contract. The International Organization of Securities Commission, or otherwise known as IOSCO, has also introduced a new set of standards for benchmarks. And the Financial Stability Board has done some detailed reports on the priorities for further reforms of interest rate and foreign exchange benchmarks. There are also a number of broader regulatory market and firm level initiatives that are underway in this area. The second Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, usually referred to as MIFID II in the European context, is expected to have a major impact on the structure of thick markets across Europe with new requirements for transparency uh, that will transform the way some of these markets function. And the European Market Abuse Regulation will greatly extend the coverage of market abuse provisions over thick markets. Internationally, the program of derivatives reform led by the G20 will also see large sections of the derivatives market moved onto organized venues for the first time. And foreign exchange committees have committed to develop a set of global high-level principles on foreign exchange trading across a number of central banks. Closer to home, there have also been a number of initiatives aimed at improving culture and behaviour at the firm and individual level, including the UK Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards and the Banking Standards Review Council led by Sir Richard Lambert. And there have also been widespread efforts by individual firms to strengthen internal controls. The introduction of malice, bonus clawbacks, and the senior managers and certification regime in the UK will also strengthen accountability as well. Is all of this enough? That is, the, that is really the next, quench, the, the next question. This range of initiatives that are ongoing should increase, uh, should make these markets more fair and effective. But we need to make sure that taken together, they add up to a comprehensive solution to fix the barrel and get rid of the bad apples. A primary aim of our review is to take stock and ask whether the extent of regulatory, organizational, and technological change since the crisis will be sufficient to ensure that thick markets are fair and effective in the future. Over the next three months, we want to hear from those directly active in those markets, from the companies and households who rely on them, from academics, and from public authorities globally. Our approach will be explicitly forward-looking. 
We have no hidden agenda where we judge that changes already underway are sufficient, uh, we will say so. And where we do not, we will make recommendations on the most important priorities for change. A defining characteristic of our review is that Improving the fairness and effectiveness is a shared responsibility between individuals, firms, the market as a whole, and public authorities. And as I've said at the outset, we believe that markets, when they work properly, are the best source of dynamism, prosperity, and progress. So I expect that a key part of the review's final recommendations will consist of firm and market-led initiatives. And with that in mind, we will draw on input from an independent panel of senior market practitioners chaired by Elizabeth Corley and bring together senior representatives of internationally active market participants and investors, market infrastructure providers, major corporate users of financial markets and independent members. The final recommendations of the review will be by, made by me and my co-chairs with the support of the excellent team that we've assembled, uh, and we will take full, full responsibility for that. But we hope that the panel will help launch and take forward those parts of the final recommendations requ requiring active market ownership. And where firm-level solutions are not enough to improve fairness and effectiveness, targeted interventions by the authorities, including regulations, will be part of the review's toolkit. So let me say a little bit about where we think some of the solutions may lie. The scope of our consultation is potentially huge. When I discussed it with um, one, a colleague in a, another central bank, he said, do you have 10 years to do this? I said, no, we have 10 months. Um, <laughs> so let me say a few words about how we're going to try and give focus to our work and give you a sense of the kind of questions that we're asking in our consultation document. This figure gives you a sense of the framework that we're using to think about how to make markets more fair and effective. And it's based on some very detailed work we've done that looked at previous cases of misconduct and tried to untangle what were the causes of misconduct and, 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 and how did they originate. And we've divided it up into these six areas, broadly into two categories, issues about the way the market is structured and issues specific to conduct. Let me say something about each of these in turn. And let me start with market microstructure. Mark, the microstructure of thick markets covers such things as the arrangements for trading, price transparency, market access, and a range of asset types. And as I noted earlier, many of the products in these markets are tailored to the specific needs of individual borrowers or investors. And although that may be good news for them, it does mean that quite a number of thick markets are relatively thin and lack widespread transparency and are hence intrinsically more vulnerable to manipulation. So there may be a trade-off between the benefits of customization and the costs in terms of weaker liquidity and potentially greater vulnerability to abuse. Regulatory and technological change is already underway, and it's leading to greater standardization and greater transparency in FIT markets. In the consultation document, we ask whether that process should go further. 
whether through industry-led standardization, removing barriers to entry for new electronic trading platforms or utility, or further transparency, removing barriers to entry, uh, and enhancements to practices such as new issue allocation, whether those kind of changes would make these markets even more effective. Or could imposing standardization or transparency standards in excess of those already in place actually harm rather than enhance market functioning and the risk of, and risk transfers? Do practices such as what's called internalization, where banks match off clients' orders internally and settle them on their own books, pose any particular challenges? The second topic is competition and market discipline. Now, concentration in some thick markets is actually relatively high, despite how large they are, both among the intermediaries and among the major asset managers, and it's actually risen further since the financial crisis. For example, the top six dealers account for over 60% of the UK interdealer foreign exchange market, and the UK market is, is already about 40% of the global market. In some cases, firms have also engaged in horizontal or vertical integration, raising potential conflicts of interest and, and concerns about information asymmetry. A number of recent misconduct cases have actually involved attempted collusion, abuse of market power, or inadequate man management of conflicts of interest. The ability of FIC market participants to exercise the market discipline that's so critical to the effectiveness of these markets against those engaging in misconduct may have also diminished somewhat in recent years. At the same time, the market maker model has delivered important benefits, including very tight pricing and deep and nearly continuous liquidity in a wide range of market conditions. That model is now changing as increased risk aversion and regulatory reforms designed to, re to reduce, to, sorry, to return the cost of liquidity and capital to more sustainable levels favors more agency-based trading models. The potential diminution of liquidity in fake markets has been raised as a concern by many investors and end users in the consultation, in our, in our early consultations. So this issue is very finely balanced for us to, and an important one for us to explore. How are competitive conditions likely to change and what lessons can be learned from other markets, both in the financial sector and more widely? And what can be done to strengthen market discipline? Is there sufficient awareness of the scope and nature of the authorities' competition powers? And how best can conflicts of interest intrinsic to these specific trading models be managed? Let me turn to the third structural area, which is benchmarks. Now, there's been a lot of reform in the area of benchmarks, as I've mentioned, and more is on the way. The question we ask in the consultation document is whether this goes far enough. Could steps be taken to reduce or diversify the reliance of asset managers and other investors on benchmarks? Are there additional changes that could be made to improve their design, construction, and governance? What further measures need to be taken to ensure that there is greater compliance with IOSCO's standards for better benchmarks? And how can the regulatory framework provide protections to market participants in other jurisdictions in a proportionate way? We then turn to the three conduct categories. 
And as I mentioned, every act of misconduct starts with an individual's decision, and that individual should be held accountable for that. But that decision is heavily shaped by the environment or the barrel that that individual is operating in, by the incentives that individual is given, financial or otherwise, by the perceived probability of being caught, and by the expected penalty they will face if they do get caught. The recent speeches by Bill Dudley and Dan Tarullo of the U.S. Federal Reserve at a workshop last week on conduct issues in financial markets lays out those issues very nicely. So let me say a bit about each one of the conduct areas. First, standards of market practice. On one view, the existing regulatory provisions and voluntary codes, of which there are many in these markets, provide a sufficient guide of expectations of market practice. And if that's the case, our main priority now should be on enforcement actions against those who breach these codes and a parallel process of ensuring that market participants understand the implications of those provisions. The review explores a number of ideas for deepening that education process and encouraging more of Kahneman's System 2 type thinking in these markets. But a further question is whether we need to supplement existing rules and codes in these markets with more specific market-wide guidance or rules on acceptable market practice on a global basis for global markets. The regulatory perimeter is being extended in Europe and codes covering foreign exchange markets are being updated. Market participants have nevertheless identified a range of market practices to the review where they believe further guidance might be useful. Put another way, is there more that we need to do to embed acceptable behavior in participants' rapid reaction system one responses to situation of conflicts? How can these codes be given more teeth whilst also remaining consistent with the many different national regulatory regimes and voluntary codes already in place? And how can it be customized to the individual conditions of specific markets? And how can it be couched in language that ordinary traders will understand? And how can it be owned by industry? Or does it ultimately need to be embedded in regulation through an extension of the regulatory perimeter? Let me return to responsibilities, governance, and incentives. It is clear that in the run-up to the crisis, some firms active in fit markets had allowed the culture on their trading floors to get out of control and combined with weak controls and incentives focused heavily on short-term revenue performance, uh, many of these problems arose. In such structure, a focus on protecting the firm's reputation, normally an important bulwark against misconduct, became heavily diluted, with some traders feeling greater loyalty to their desk or their peers in the market than to their own firms. Now, a lot has happened in the field since the crisis. The better alignment of incentives has been a key plank of the reform agenda. In the UK, we're looking to introduce new accountability measures through the proposed senior managers and certification regime, and the new powers to defer the payment of bonuses or, where necessary, claw them back where there's been misconduct. Several banks have already moved to withhold bonuses or to cut bonus pools as a result of the recent misconduct cases affecting their firms. 
And such moves make it more likely that the individuals will ultimately face the long-term consequences of their choices. But looking more broadly, the risk is that as the memories of these recent enforcement cases fade, bad practices may re-emerge. Some say that's already happening. So we want to ask what more can be done to hardwire sounder approaches, including improving measures for appraising performance, promotion, and advancement of individuals, better safeguards against staff moves, ways to strengthen the role of boards in the governance of FIC activities, and ways to strengthen the role of frontline managers, the so-called first line of defense. Let me say something about the final area, which is surveillance and penalties. However successful we may be in introducing stronger standards and incentivizing people to follow them, attempted misconduct will occur. And so the review wants to consider what more can be done to monitor and where found to punish misconduct. Firms should be at the front line of these efforts. Underdeveloped monitoring systems and poor procedures for dealing with internal misconduct undoubtedly played a role in recent years. Though approaches to these issues have since improved, the review is keen to identify examples of best practice and ways in which authorities can further catalyze progress. Questions we raise include the scope for stronger firm-level whistleblowing regimes, the role for electronic surveillance, penalties imposed by firms for staff breaching internal guidelines and ways to publicize such cases, and the extent to which firms can punish poor behavior by other firms by shifting business and reporting such behavior to the authorities. So let me come to my conclusion. We are slowly emerging from the worst economic crisis in living memory. And much has been done to strengthen the financial systems, the financial system since then. Banks hold much more capital. They have more effective liquidity support. Major progress is being made on ending too big to fail on the global stage. And in the UK, we have transformed the way that we regulate banks and how we set policies to deliver financial stability. But some of the benefits of those changes are being offset by a long tail of outrageous conduct cases. These are like salt rubbed into the wound of public confidence in financial markets. And this is in no one's interest. Many leaders in the financial industry and the majority of those who work in these markets are ashamed of this bad behavior and want to find a way to put it comprehensively behind them. And the fines that have been, uh, that have been imposed on firms have been sufficiently large to actually require firms reshaping their businesses. I'm confident we can find a way forward. I recall the story of when the Queen visited the London School of Economics in November 2008, at the height of the crisis, and asked the gathered assembly of distinguished economists why nobody had noticed that a crisis was on its way. The reply came in the form of a letter from the British Academy, where Nick currently serves as the president. And the bottom line, the answer they gave her, was that the crisis was caused by, quote, a failure of collective imagination of many bright people, both in this country and internationally, to understand the risks to the system as a whole. 
This is a moment when we need collective imagination to imagine financial markets that are fair and effective and work in the interests of all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Manoush. Um, I feel my anxiety levels have gone down a little bit that, uh, that you're in charge with your colleagues uh, of all of this. Um, we have some time for questions. We've had a very rich, thoughtful, structured um, lecture this evening. Um, I'm going to take uh, three questions at a time and then ask uh, Minouche to um, take those together. And if you could please identify yourself um, where you come from, and particularly identify yourself if you're a journalist. You're, you're very welcome, but we do like to know, we do like, do like to know who you are. Questions? There's a gentleman in the, in the, in the white shirt in the second row back at the top there. Um, I'm not a journalist, but I'll go anyway. Um, obviously, markets are global. And obviously, this is quite. A, this is quite. Did a you Did you say who you were? I missed. Uh, I'm saying I'm not a journalist. Oh, you're not a journalist. <laughs> no, no, please. But you do have a name. No, no. That... <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Uh, my name's Graham. Sorry, uh, Graham. From uh, uh, East London. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> we got there in the end. Go, go ahead, Graham. Go, Graham. Um, go, so, Graham. with your obviously in in the UK, we're going to have this this regulatory framework, which is obviously very strange and very well thought out. Then, obviously, with a global market, you could have sort of people like committing like similar scandals elsewhere in the world, mm. which obviously then has a knock-on effect on our market. Is the kind of hope that this will be the sort of leader for most fed, fed sort of developed markets, or do you still kind of foresee foreign markets being a, being a sort of threat to thick markets in the UK? Thank you. Uh, I'll take two more questions, and then we'll turn to Manoush. Please. Mr Chairman, I'd like to thank the speaker for her talk, but I can't say I've found myself much in agreement with it. My name's Paul Hudson. I'm no longer a fixed academic at Bowood, and I was a financial journalist about 100 years ago. <laughs> um, uh, Professor John Kay, well, he's now an investment uh, banker, came here about eight, 15 months ago, and he dealt with many of the points you've raised. He thinks because investment bankers know much better than the regulators what will happen, he wouldn't share your optimism at all. He thinks bankers will always find a way around it. Now, I always thought, I did used to work in a bank, again, that's almost 100 years ago as well, um, that the financial sector was supposed to be providing the kind of uh, lubricating oil for the real sector. But is that the case? Into, let's just look at international trade, for example. About uh, 1975, the amount of money measured in um, then current uh, dollars uh, that was exchanging international frontiers was something of the order of nearly nine times the amount of value of international trade.
by 2005, that was nearly 90 times. That seems to suggest the financial sector is a complete waste of time. And when you talk about, in fact, the markets being fair, I presume you've got Pareto optimality behind your mind, but the outcomes of the market depend on what the distribution of income happens to be. If you change the distribution of our uh, income, you'll probably get changes in the market. I don't understand the concept of fairness. And as regards, in fact, the answer... So can, the could, you, could you crystallise the question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would like, in fact, to hear a refutation of the point that the markets are a good thing, given that Guy Standing, now at SOAS, wrote a report on 51 countries which were forced by the World Bank, in fact, to free up all their markets, nationalise a lot of their... Um, public utilities, including health, and 37 of those 51, they experienced a decline in the national income per head, and the remaining 14 showed an increase. I don't think this is an argument, in fact, in favour of a market system. I'm sorry. So I would like you to answer those points, please. Okay. Uh, lady at the back there, please. Hello. My name's Peace Honey and I work as a risk manager within corporate governance. Um, my question is really related to your point with regards to being able to identify the bad apples and um, correcting the barrel. I'm quite interested with regards to how you think you're going to go about doing that or how that's possible. The reason why I say that... Um, because I did a course over the summer at Harvard in corporate governance, and one of the guest speakers was, of course, um, I forget his name, Andy, I forget his name now, the... No, Andy... Um, Haldane. No, <laughs> the, the CFO <laughs> of Enron, what's his name? CFO of Enron? Yes, the former CFO. <laughs> I forget his name. Sorry, anyway. Schilling. The point I'm trying to make is he was somebody who obviously didn't, wasn't identified as a, as a bad apple, and eventually we saw the demise of Enron. I just wonder who would form, I suppose, this group or panel that would come up with the mechanisms of how to identify these bad apples in order to ensure that that objective is achieved, I suppose. Mm. Thank you. So that's uh, three questions <laughs> covering uh, an awful lot of ground. Um, you know, the world, um, our market's a good thing anyway, and uh, nuances on that one. And uh, could we ever spot Andy Schilling coming? Um, <laughs> that I probably haven't done justice to the questions, but if you could um, um, respond. Please, Manish. Okay. All right. I mean, on the first question on um, the international dimension, and clearly that is absolutely key for this effort. Um, you know, London represents a significant share of these markets, in, for many of these markets, really quite a large share. But it's, these are truly global, and it makes no sense for us to make changes here without coordinating with international partners. And we've already started doing that process. So we've already had initial discussions with the European Commission, with the U.S. authorities, with authorities in Asia, um, and with many of the trade associations in these markets who are global often in scope, or at least regional. Um, and so 
we see that very much as an important part of this effort. So we will do what we can here in the UK, but we will also make a big effort, especially in the months ahead as we start the consultation process, to reach out and try and build an international consensus on how to reform these markets. So very much agree with the spirit of your question. I very much disagree with the spirit of your question, I'm afraid, but the answer to it would involve such a long answer that I don't think I could do it justice in this, in this, uh, in this context. Um, I would encourage you to read the consultation document because we think a lot about what is fair and what does effective mean, and we have a whole chapter kind of dedicated to defining our terms. Um, you know, I think the why... Yeah, well, the, in many ways, much of what I've described, uh, what, I, what I mentioned at the end of my speech about all the measures that are being put in place to make sure that we don't have to bail out the banks in the next crisis in terms of holding more capital, in terms of putting restrictions on, on, uh, on leverage and on stress testing, which is very much in the news today. Those three key pillars of ensuring that the banking system is safer in the future, I think, are, uh, are quite compelling. And I think you can't, it would be foolish to throw out the markets simply because of what happened in the crisis. I don't think any, frankly, I, you know, I just think the empirical evidence on which economies in the world have been successful and prosperous is so clear as to which ones, those have been ones who've been able to use markets effectively. Um, that I think the empirical evidence is pretty clear. Uh, but having said that, markets have deficiencies and that's exactly why we need the kind of measures that I've talked about today for thick markets, but also in other aspects of markets. So there's always a role for regulation. And you'll be pleased to know that we are talking to John Kay, who's given us lots of good ideas uh, in, the context of, uh, in the context of this work. And then finally, how do you find the Enron, uh, the sort of the, the Enron... CEO, Andy Schiller. Yes. I mean, I think, um, you know, that was a case where where Enron tried to kind of corner energy markets uh, and restrict access and resulting in power cuts in California and so on. And we've, we have looked at what's happened in some of the commodity markets in terms of people trying to uh, restrain, uh, restrain supply. Commodity markets are a bit special because many of the people who have... Um, Many of the suppliers and producers have very active trading arms, and so they have privileged information about supply and therefore can impact price and take advantage of that inside information uh, to trade against the, the information that they have. Um, and so one of the things that we're uh, looking at in commodity markets is what's the role of transparency and the way information is revealed in those markets and how can we make sure that they're less vulnerable to the kind of manipulation that, uh, that occurred in the case of Enron. In the end, finding guilty people who are committing market manipulation is ultimately the responsibility of the firms, their management, and the boards who are accountable for the running of those firms. Um, they have to be the first line of defense for identifying this kind of misbehavior. Regulatory authorities are there and can, you know, can find examples of and, and can do their jobs. But in the end, the ultimate first line of defense has to be the caliber of the management and the boards of those institutions. 
Thank you. A gentleman in the back row there. Thank you. Nasser Qalawun. Um, I do occasional reporting for BBC Arabic and other uh, Arab satellite uh, channels. Uh, my question is uh, about your relationship as a bank with the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland. Is it warm, lukewarm, or cold? <laughs> um, that's number one. And number two, how is, uh, since uh, London as a uh, financial center affects the GCC and the Arab world as well, how the relationship is, is going to reflect in the review? I know the remit of your review is local, not international. However, the international factor is being affected by this. How the relationship with Arab central banks, especially the, uh, in the Gulf and in Egypt, would be affected by this in matters of regulations, uh, you know, the finance of terrorism and the uh, manipulation of, uh, you know, the foreign exchange as well. So, thank you very much. You can choose the language in which you reply to the... <laughs> Please, gentlemen, just there. Thanks. Um, my name's Owen. I write for a magazine called Global Capital. Um, you mentioned uh, several scandals, uh, benchmarks, FX, CDS, commodities manipulation. Um, do you have any reason to suspect that similar kinds of behaviour has been occurring in sort of vanilla bond markets, which are also kind of within the scope of the review? Thanks. Thank you. Um, any, I'm just looking at the... We've got quite a big stock now. Can I um, ask you to keep your questions very short? There's gentlemen at the top there. If you keep your questions very short, we've probably got time for the hands I've seen, but if you could keep them that way. That's working now. My name's Vivek. I work for a, a fund management company called Tufton Oceanic. Um, my question is, has the consultation uh, come up with any viable alternatives for how LIBOR should be set every day? Okay. So that's uh, three people, more than three questions. Okay, so... Go ahead. I'll be brief so we can get through more questions. Uh, on the BIS, I'd say warm. Uh, the BIS is uh, fondly known as the club for central bankers. Uh, it's where central bankers go regularly to compare notes, share information, and I think it's, I think it's quite a warm relationship. So that's, that would be my summary. In terms of the GCC and the relationship with London as a financial market, they are obviously large users of London as a financial market. Um, and would obviously have an interest in the review coming up with ways to make these markets fairer and more effective. I think the only other thing I'd note on the GCC is one of the things that we're working on at the Bank of England at the moment is that some of the GCC banks have issues around uh, Sharia compliant liquidity facilities and we've committed at the Bank of England for next, toward the second half of 2015, to do some work on how we could provide liquidity to Sharia that would be Sharia compliant to enable banks that are Islamic banks in operating in London to serve their liquidity needs with a, a system that is non-interest bearing. So that would be the only other thing I'd say. On vanilla bond markets, I have no, no reason to believe that I have no evidence that there is a problem of misconduct in those, in those markets as far as I'm aware. And on LIBOR, uh, I would point to my colleague Martin Wheatley, who's in the audience, who has in the Wheatley review that was completed uh, 
about a year ago, proposed a, a much improved method for compiling LIBOR, uh, which I should let him describe, actually, since he's here, but uh, uh, essentially relies on a much more transactions-based, is, has much more rigor around the governance, around who submits LIBOR, uh, and I think there has been quite a lot of restoration of confidence in LIBOR as a result of, of that review. There's some more work that you may be aware of that's being done under the FSB's auspices on on the future of interest rate benchmarks. And they propose, and and it's under consultation at the moment, they're proposing a sort of two-tier system where you have a a risk-free reference rate, possibly related to some kind of central bank rate, and then another rate which which has bank credit risk in it which, again, would be based much more on transactions, on a wider definition of eligible submitters so that you don't have such thinly traded, uh, thinly traded markets contributing to LIBOR submissions. But if you read the Wheatley report, which I would highly recommend to you, it has a, quite a detailed answer to that, to that question. Thank, thank you, Manoush. Um, the only priority we try to look for for, for questions at, at the school is, is some... Um, uh, gender balance. So, I, I, if I see uh, you already had one, and it was very good, but the, uh, I'm, I'm looking. Please. Catherine Bradley, independent board member at the FCA since two months ago, and before that, 30 years banker in capital markets and derivatives. So you very wisely told us, mentioned to us the uh, how we are solving the problem with conduct, telling us why that in the end the firms themselves have got to do their own uh, cleaning up, and I think the banks are starting to understand the message. How do we prepare ourselves for the next uh, problems? How can the Bank of England and the others uh, figure out, have their antennas to know where the next problem will come from? Thank you. Gentleman down here at the front, and then this gentleman here. Hi, my name is Klaus Michaelis. I'm an exchange student here at the moment. And my question is basically, you talked about two problems. So the one problem, basically, that you want to have highly capitalized banks that are not going to uh, make any bailouts necessary in the next crisis. And on the other side, you're also worried about thinly trade markets. Now, if we think about fixed income markets, one big issue is that because you want banks to hold more capital against certain long-dated uh, uh, securities like uh, high-duration interest rate products, those products at some point do not uh, are not, no longer profitable for them to trade. Therefore, they exit those markets, and uh, the liquidity in those asset classes goes down, which is also something we might have seen two weeks ago in the so-called flash crash. So it's something that the financial community is talking a lot about. Do you also see this uh, problem? And if so, uh, what's your preference, and how do you manage this conflict, basically? Thank you. Thanks, gentlemen, here. My name is Lofsky Mangepen. I'm from France, and I'm a teacher there. A very basic uh, non-academic question, Dr. Shafiq. Uh, why is it that those who are held responsible of misconduct, which you've mentioned so, so frequently during your speech, uh, why are they taken to court? If I run a bank tomorrow, I'll be taken to court and then probably sentenced to several years of imprisonment. Mm. This is never the case. There are negotiations in the States with the Department of Justice, and, and I don't think this is the case in England. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, On the first question, on preparing for the next problem, did you mean in the conduct area or general in terms of financial stability? 
general. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things we do on the Financial Policy Committee at the Bank of England is constantly review where there are risks emerging to financial stability. Um, so we have a sort of regular program of work where we're looking at emerging risks as a result of changes in the markets, as a result of changes in what banks are doing. And I think we just have to continue to do that sort of horizon scanning as part of our work. I think the, the, the real in, in innovation is that post-crisis, you know, in the past, nobody was responsible for doing that. The Bank of England was responsible for monetary policy. The FCA did you know, stability of individual institutions. And that constantly looking at where are the systemic risks, the issue that you know, the, the message you guys gave the Queen, which was nobody was worrying about the risk to the system of, of, as a whole. We now have a dedicated committee in the Bank of England whose job it is to worry about the system as a whole. Uh, and I think that institutional innovation puts us in a much better place to anticipate those risks going forward. I think on the question of uh, how is the change in structure affecting liquidity in these markets, we have heard this from uh, some of the firms that we've spoken to already. We've probably spoken to about 100 market participants in these markets. Um, and some do say that some of these regulatory changes have changed the incentives to, uh, to hold, you know, hold inventory to make the market maker model work. Um, and we need to look at that in the review and try and understand how big a problem that is uh, and think about ways that might facilitate the more efficient use of liquidity, such as greater standardization, more exchange trading, more multi-dealer platforms, so that the liquidity there is in the market gets used more efficiently. And so that is certainly a question that we'll be looking at in the review. And then finally, why don't they get sent to court? Well, some of them have. Uh, and I think you know, my colleagues at the Financial Conduct Authority are doing a very good job of trying to get as many of these people uh, into court and punished for these crimes. Certainly the firms are having to pay very large fines uh, when they've been found guilty of misconduct. But I think the recent uh, decisions that have been taken to make manipulation of LIBOR uh, a criminal offense, and now the recommendation made by the review to bring seven additional benchmarks into scope, such that if anyone is caught trying to manipulate those benchmarks, they will also be subject to criminal sanction. I think those are important steps. At the European level, we'll also see this becoming subject to criminal sanctions uh, with when, when MIFID comes into force, when MIFID and MARA come into force at the European context in 2016 and 2017, respectively. So we're getting there in terms of making this more, uh, uh, more you know, holding people more directly to account for, for this behavior. Thank you, Anoush. Uh, lady there in the middle. My name is Anna. I'm not a journalist. I'm a sixth form student. Um, you've mentioned that one of the issues with the structure of fake markets is that there's a vast inequality in distribution of market share. To what extent would the reforms you've proposed uh, resolve that issue? Thank you. Gentleman right at the back. Thank you. 
My name is Anthony. I'm a student here at the LSE. My question is, I understand that recently the, uh, the Chancellor of the UK and the uh, Treasurer in the US have held bilateral talks on a simulation of what they would do in the case of another major financial situation. Mm -hmm. I, I'm concerned that it's only bilateral. Do you think that in future talks there's room for more governments to join or possibly even private entities such as the large banks or corporations? Thank you. Okay. Lady at the back there. Hi, um, Sue Chan from The Telegraph. You spoke briefly in your previous round of questions about um, the comments from market participants. In your uh, initial round of conversations, I mean, are you singing from the same hymn sheet or has there been a lot of push and pull about what they want and the goals that you're trying to achieve? Thank you. Okay. Um, in terms of market structure, um, this is one of the most difficult areas for us, I think, and we're, we, are, we are looking at what uh, the pros and cons, you know, like anything in life, there are pros and cons. The current structure uh, delivers quite tight pricing, delivers continuous liquidity for many market participants, and that's valued by many market participants. Um, the, the, the move toward what's called internalization, where large banks settle uh, on their own balance sheet, is seen as very advantageous, particularly for large market participants who want to be able to settle uh, with a bit less transparency so that they don't affect market prices. So there are pros and cons. Um, I think there are questions about the con is obviously you get much less good price discovery in the transparent market when a lot of the trading is going on outside the, 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 the transparent market. So there are trade-offs. I think what, that is one of the things we're going to look at. I don't, one of the questions we ask in the review is to what extent should we have a competition policy lens and look at these markets from a competition policy lens and whether that would change the way we think about them. So I can't say we have a strong view yet, but we're, we're going to ask those questions and are keen to get views on them. On the uh, recent uh, simulation that we did on resolution, um, I think it was an, a very important first step. It's the first time that the US and the UK authorities have sat down and asked themselves, given all the changes in the regulatory structure, given the fact that if hypothetically in future there is a bank failure, we don't want to have to put public money in, how would we use the existing structures to make sure that we could resolve a major global bank in, a, in an orderly fashion uh, and in a way that uh, would reduce the need to rely on public, on public funding. Um, so it was an important first step. It was, it's already pretty complicated between the US and the UK to figure this out, but I think in principle there's definitely a desire to think about how to do this with other authorities going forward because clearly it might not be a US or UK bank that, that, that fails in the future and we need to be able to find an orderly process uh, globally. Of course, that is being done under the auspices of the FSB uh, for uh, which I can, it's full of acronyms, but it, through the discussions around what's called TLAC, uh, total loss absorbing capital, and the debate about single versus multiple point of entry resolution strategies. And those discussions are occurring to, to ensure that other, that other authorities would be involved, that could be involved in future resolutions would, be, would, would have coordinated ahead of time. And then market participants are, um, 
You know, I, I wouldn't say that there's been a lot of pushback. I think there are, these are big markets, complicated markets. People have different perspective. I think at this stage we're, ask, we're identifying the issues and asking questions. Uh, I think we'll probably have more give and take when we have specific recommendations and proposals. But so far I think the engagement for market participants has been excellent. Um, when we launched this process... Uh, the governor of the Bank of England asked me to make calls to some of the leading, the CEOs of most of the major banks. And um, I have to say, and we also spoke to many on, on the, uh, the buy side as well, and I think, I think what struck me is that there is, there is a genuine understanding that we need to solve this problem uh, and a genuine willingness. And I think we have a real political window of opportunity at the moment to resolve these issues because of the series of scandals, because of the size of the fines, because everyone wants to put this behind them and fix this problem because it is in no one's interest. So I think the current discussions with market participants have been very encouraging. Thank you, Anoush. Um, yeah, gentleman right up there in the back. Um, have, you, have you considered much the uh, potential role of U.S. top 100 super liquid exchange traded funds in fixed income and credits, which usually lead to super liquid futures? And these macro pools of liquidity can probably quite likely avert many of the uh, illiquidity pockets that lead to need to bail out banks for having illiquid securities that they can't offload. And also, secondly, have you considered the kind of realpolitik of uh, narrow market participants? There's typically f perhaps five big market participants in many fixed income and credit markets, so it tends to be a bit of a club. And, of course, a club doesn't really want to be uh, broken open unless really forced to. And one way of doing that would be to, cr to create more credible fixed income and credit indexes and therefore ETFs and therefore futures and therefore super liquidity and therefore great ease of hedging and therefore n minimal need for bailouts and also much more easy access to fixed income and credit markets such as government bonds of different countries, uh, the long end and uh, high yield a sovereign and uh, municipals and uh, mortgage-backed securities. There's, there's lots of pools of macro liquidity that have not adequately been created into credible indexes, and a central bank could have a critical role to push that along and basically break up the club of typically five big banks running each uh, sub-fixed income market. It doesn't seem to be uh, particularly open and liquid. It's just going to lead to a cycle of even bigger to fail and even less... Uh, openness unless basically pushed to become more open. Thank you. So the gentleman at the top here. Thank you. My name is Brandon Davies. I'm, uh, or I, I was until three weeks ago, chairman of a private equity company. Um, uh, next stage to, to be delivered. But um, uh, the, um, the question I wanted to ask was, one traditional way of, of mitigating crises is normally for banks to be asked by regulators or to be encouraged by regulators to acquire banks that have got into de deep problems. So, and that's been a way, certainly in the last crisis and, and crises before. It seems unlikely to me 
that that will be a future uh, a feature of future crises, mm-hmm. given the enormous fines that have landed on the um, uh, on the uh, desks of the acquiring banks uh, on behalf of the misdeeds of the acquired. Um, in that, in the light of that, it puts a lot more strain on resolution rather than recovery. Uh, and that seems to me to produce much greater problems for trying to bail out the next financial crisis than you would have had were the um, regulators to have been somewhat lighter on the acquiring banks for the misdeeds of the acquired. I wonder how you see that problem going forward. Um, I, I can't resist asking a question myself. I, I'm Nick Stern from the London School of Economics. Um, <laughs> You pointed to the enormous scale of trading, and we know that um, some people get extraordinarily high rewards from trading. So I want to ask the question that the wonderful late Jim Tobin might have asked, or Adair Turner might have asked, in, because they regarded a lot of that as, as Adair expressed it, socially useless activity. So you have markets which are giving very high rewards for socially useless activity if, if you take that description. Mm-hmm. Um, now in thinking about whether they're fair and effective, would you think about that issue? Because this isn't an issue about misconduct really. Mm. It's, a, it, it's a, an issue about how those markets function. So my question is, is that within the scope and uh, should it be? Mm. Okay. All right. Um, I think on the issue around ETFs and super liquidity, I mean, I think we will be looking at those kind of structural issues. As I said, this is one of the trickiest areas for us because uh, there are pros and cons. uh, And figuring out what a desirable structure for these markets would be in an end state is is not so obvious, but I think we are definitely going to look at opportunities for competition, more exchange trading, more transparency, and more standardization in order to thicken some of these markets, and that will certainly be something we'll look at in the consultation. On the issue of uh, resolution, I mean, yes, you are right. I think, you know, in the new setup, we will look to resolution being uh, an important mechanism for, uh, for dealing with banks and financial institutions that are in trouble. And in fact, we've just put out this week our sort of guidelines to four resolutions, which we will use to guide uh, decision-making about institutions in trouble. Um, you know, that's not to say that other solutions, should there be you know, mergers that would solve the problem, wouldn't be considered, but it's just to say that um, we need to be prepared that if an institution does fail, that it is resolvable in a way that will not require recourse to public money again. Um, So we, in that worst case scenario, we're just making it clear that that's that's what we need to prepare for. If some other easier solution comes up along the way, that's fine as long as it's market-based. But given the lessons of the crisis, I do think you're right. That is that is, the, that is what the worst-case scenario strategy will look like going forward for us. And then, uh, Professor Stern, you'll ask the hard questions. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think on, we've, we've debated this a lot in the team, and I think it's very... The problem is it's very hard 
when you see market transactions to define which is socially useful and which is not. Um, and in these markets, they are professional counterparties. These are people who are managing their risks, they're sophisticated actors. They, as long as they bear the burden of any bad decisions they make, we're taking a fairly liberal view as to whether or not they can incur those transactions. I think where we would draw a line is, of course, if there's any systemic spillovers or stability risks that might have public policy consequences. But I think we're not going to try and define, a, you know, define the boundaries of which transactions in fit markets are socially useful and which ones are socially useless, because I think it would be, I think it would be too hard to do. And I think, given the, you know, I think the public policy interest is: are these professionals, and do they know what they're doing, or are they exploiting, you know? retail, unsophisticated investors who might get taken advantage of? And do these firms suffer the consequences of, their, of any bad decisions they make? Or does that, is there a risk that that spills over into the public interest? So I think those will be the boundaries that we're going to set. But I think we won't, try and, we won't try and pinpoint the utility of each of the transactions. Of course, Jim, Jim Tobin and uh, Christine Lagarde would have raised the issue of financial transaction tax in, in that context. I note. You note. <laughs> Next uh, lady, right up the top there. Um, Navreen Sandhu, second year economics student here at LSE. Um, my question is how, in, how large a part do you think for regulators incentivizing these firms are? So, do you think that just giving them financial penalties will be enough to solve the problem. So will that financial aspect and the reputational damage to these firms be enough? Mm-hmm. Um, and what sort of incentives do you have in mind? And just next to you there. Hi, uh, Alex Chiroska. Thank you for the talk. Uh, this question follows on from the previous mm-hmm. about incentives. You talked a lot about bad apples and... Um, I suppose that's the stick. Will there be some kind of carrot about creating positive incentives for kind of people who work with a good code of conduct and um, kind of work towards sustainable markets? Uh, Gentleman just there. I've been reading today a lot about the AQR stress tests Mm. by the ECB. One of the criticisms of them was that they didn't take account of the impact of uh, the cost of litigation and fines Mm -hmm. for misconduct. Mm -hmm. They should, shouldn't they? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Okay, uh, so let me start with um, are financial penalties enough? And I think, I mean, it's a very good question. I think there is no doubt that the penalties have been large, and we're not done yet. Um, but many people say that financial penalties against the firms is not enough, and actually individuals have to be held account to account rather than just firms. 
And I think some of the reforms that I've described today in terms of making manipulation of benchmarks a criminal offense, for example, will we'll get to that question of how do you hold individuals to account. I think the other reforms that are currently out for consultation by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulatory Authority are the changes to the senior manager's regime and the certification regime uh, and the changes to remuneration that are being proposed. So under those, senior managers who in financial institutions who take on risks that are unwarranted and that bring the firm into, jet, into, uh, into undue risk will be held to account uh, for those decisions. And the remuneration reforms will mean that if uh, that more and more of bonuses will be potentially at risk. So if there's misconduct, bonuses that can be reduced from that can be deducted from bonuses and it can be in theory bonuses will be deferred up to seven years and if an individual commits a a crime and then moves on to another firm, that bonus can be clawed back even if they've moved on elsewhere so that, so that they're held to account for over time uh, when misconduct can be found. So I think all of those other reforms uh, get to those issues about individual accountability a bit more. And then I think the point about positive incentives is also terribly important. Um, there are many firms who are now using what are often called balanced scorecards, where you hold teams or individuals to account not just for financial performance, but also for conduct compliance and, and risk management. Um, and that's obviously a positive step, and we, we will highlight those good examples of, uh, of that. Uh, another thing that some are trying to do, which is a bit difficult but is very important, is to try and get conduct and compliance and good risk management into compensation. So bonuses are linked not just to the profits you generated for the firm, but also these wider positive things. Um, and I think that's an important, uh, an important way forward as well. On the uh, AQR and the way that they treat misconduct costs, I, yes, I believe you're right. They don't include estimates of, uh, of misconduct costs in, in those stress tests. Um, you know, I think it was really, it's really up to the European Banking Authority to decide how they want to define uh, the, the definitions. There may have, they may have difficulties in estimating what some of these, these might be, but yes, it is, it is an issue that it's not included in, in the current estimates uh, of, uh, of, of, of the stress tests. Um. Thank you, Manoush. Now, I'm just going to take two more because we promised that we would close um, by uh, 8 o'clock. So I'm going to take one from downstairs, one from upstairs. Um, this gentleman here. Thank you. My question is, um, I'm a student in financial mathematics at LSE. Um, regarding micro-infrastructure and the standards of market practice, um, um, is also the activity of high-frequency trading firms in the scope of your considerations? And if so, in consequence, might they fall under um, further regulations more than now? Thank you. And the gentleman right at the back there. That's the, la that's the last one, I'm afraid. Um, hello. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned very quickly that the transgressions initially began intuitively um, and then developed and became cognitive. However, then you said that that actually wasn't credible. I just wanted to know why you felt it wasn't credible. Thank you, Minush. Okay. 
Okay. Um, so on the um, high-frequency trading, I mean, high-frequency trading is more prevalent in equity markets, and we're focused on fixed-income currency and commodity markets. The closest parallel we have is this phenomenon of internalization, where uh, large institutions are settling internally in their own, on their own balance sheet the, some of these trades. Uh, some of them quite a lot, up to 90%, for example, are internalized uh, in, 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 in these financial institutions. And we will look at that issue uh, as to whether that is good or bad for these markets. Um, as I said, you know, there, there are pros and cons, like in many things in life. Uh, it works to the advantage of large players. Uh, it, you know, there are pricing advantages for, those, for, for some of those players by, going, by using internalized models internalized markets. Um, on the other hand, you get less transparency and less price discovery in, in the rest of the market. Very similar set of issues as what you face with high-frequency trading. So um, we will look at, at that issue of internalization and hopefully by the end of the process have a view on whether on what we think that has done to, to fit markets. And then finally, the question about whether it's credible or not. I think, I think that view comes from the fact that when we looked at some of the recent misconduct cases and we looked at you know, years and years worth of what caused misconduct cases, what we found is that it was never one thing. It was never this guy was a bad guy. <laughs> you know, it was always a combination of there wasn't a lot of competition in this market or the benchmark was very poorly designed and easily subjected to manipulation and the surveillance in the firm was weak. It was usually a combination of one of these, of, of several of these six factors. The notion that it was just a bad apple, I think, was, you know, is a it's an easy explanation, but, it, but life is never so simple, is what we've discovered, which is why we do think that bad apples are a problem, because they do infect the culture. Uh, and they, the, the norms that that misbehavior establishes and how those get you know, become part of the culture is, is damaging. So we don't want to say it's not a bad apple problem. Of course there are bad apples, and we need to try and find them and prosecute them. But it's not just that. We have to look at some of these wider issues that govern the way these market works, and that's why we're focused on this, these, these, these wider issues, which I'm loosely calling the barrel. Uh, we have to fix the barrel, and we also have to weed out the bad apples, and I think that's the, that's the main message of, of, of this consultation document is, is that's the key challenge, and we're very eager to get both those interest oper operating in these markets, but also interested in these markets to help us figure out what are the solutions, both at the market level, at the firm level, for individuals, but also for regulators, to try and make these markets really fair and effective um, for the future. Minouj, thank you very much. You've, you've set out um, your consultation and the work of your uh, group in a, in a very thoughtful way, in a very open way and a uh, very wise way, in my view. And I, I think, at least in your work, you've demonstrated the kind of behavior you're trying to encourage in the markets out there. Um, I do think the metaphor of the apples and the barrel uh, will stay with us. Um, it's, a, it's a good one, I think. Um, but I wanted to thank you for coming here and making your first outing as Deputy Governor with us at the LSE and for setting out the thoughts and the questions in such a thoughtful, structured and uh, reasonable way. Thank you very much, Manish. Thank you.